Hello, and welcome to Highland Church Audio Sermons. Today, March 24th, 2019, we're continuing our series titled, Walk This Way from 2 Timothy. Today's sermon, Agonize the Good Agony, is going to be talked to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. We hope you enjoy! You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Thank you so much for the family that you have given to us. Why is Dad giving the guy a blanket? Hold the door for Grandma Jay. Thank you. I got you. I got you. We thank you for the privilege that we have of serving you and to be disciples. I'm so sorry, baby girl. Let's try again, okay? Go ahead and ease it forward. It's okay. Let's go. Come on. I got you. Good job. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. It is exciting times here at Highlands, and I got to tell you, this uh, section of scripture, I was telling Jill in uh, the weeks of preparing, um, I was having difficulty even just reading it without becoming so emotionally overcome because, because Paul is so tenderhearted. He is, he is so kind. He's so winsome. And as he's reaching out, he's ultimately, he's just passing the baton uh, to Timothy, uh, his protege. Um, he loves him like it's his son, and he, he truly just wants to, to pass things off to him. Um, Bob, uh, next week, will get more into what he really wants um, from Timothy. But um, last week, um, it was also a critical place. Thomas talked to us about the persecutions and the difficulties of life. He used stats like every month, right, in our world today, Right, 255 Christians are killed every month. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped or sexually harassed or forced into marriage. 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and are imprisoned. Paul had his own stats, right? He himself says in 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 24, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." impressive stats. Today's message and what Paul is talking to Timothy about is not your stats. Don't compare. Don't compare, but also don't forget that if you're faithful with the Word of God, you will be persecuted. This isn't your goal. You don't seek out for for a beating. You don't seek out to be stoned. You don't seek out to become a martyr. 
what you do is you, in fact, are faithful with God's word and his calling upon your life. And here's the promise of God. It's coming with trials. And if it comes with trials, the challenge and the question that we always face is will we be faithful with that trial? James said, reminded us, right, that to know that when a trial is coming, he doesn't say if, he's not building towards it. Not, hey, some of you are going to live a life and never experience any hardship whatsoever. That's not what he's saying. You will. You will encounter hardships. You will encounter persecution. We can't forget, as Thomas spoke last week, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's for us. It's to complete us, to equip us for every good work, is what it said in 317. But I want you to have this word picture in your mind as we unfold this section of, of, of 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I want us to focus on the process not the result. You see, it's not about your stats. It's actually the manner in which you've run the race. It's all about the faithfulness to the Word of God, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Your stats are irrelevant. You're never going to stand before the Lord and, give, and tell Him, yeah, I had a really good batting average. Yeah, no, no, no. I threw a lot of touchdowns. Ran, I rushed for a lot of yards. My GPA was 4.0. Who cares? What you need to be focused on, are you faithful? You see, life is a very simple definition. It's nothing but a series of sequential moments. Each moment with the same singular purpose in mind, will you be faithful with this moment? God brings people into our life all the time, people in the grocery store line people that annoy you in the grocery store line, people on airplanes that annoy you on airplanes. They don't shut up, right? They bring their dog, right? And they put their dog in first class with you. And you sit there and you have all these moments where you're thinking to yourself, all of these infringements upon my personal rights. I don't care about your rights. This is about the word of God. And as we get into this and we look at this, I want this, this, this Dr. Samuel Rutherford, he lived from 1600 to 1661. And he said this, praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. The hammer molds us, the file sharpens us, and the fire tempers or softens us. You see, at the hands of God, of the carpenter, the hammer is in fact beating you into a new image. His file is rasping and shaping you, and iron sharpens iron, and he's sharpening you. And as the furnace, as he turns up the heat around you, he's making you soft and pliable to shape you, not into your own unique being, but into the very image of him. That we would live Christ. That we would come to see the beauty of him. So if you're there in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, pay close attention to the words that Paul is going to give to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching 
but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. His appearing. He said it in the first verse. He said it in the eighth verse. He's talking about the second coming, the return of Christ, and he's placing a heightened sense of urgency on his message to Timothy, for we are in the last days, and Christ will return imminently. He could return today. The word appearing right there is where we get actually the English word epiphany. It means that he's referring to the return of Christ, his appearing and his appearing brings great power. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, it was said this way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus will place Satan in his rightful place by just his breath of his word and his appearing. I want us to pray here real quick before we start pulling this apart. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for what you are encouraging us with today. But Lord, I know that this message carries with it a somber message, but it also gives us and points us to the great hope that we have in the realities of you. Help us, Lord, to grow in your grace and in the knowledge of your Son. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It should be noted that Paul's circumstances have changed greatly between his writing of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. In the first letter, Paul was anticipating that he was going to be coming to see Timothy. However, in the second letter, Paul was in prison. The circumstances of Paul's imprisonment and his impending death is what frames this letter. He has a frequency of imperatives, these commands, all throughout uh, 2 Timothy. And as a reminder, I want you to watch for those imperatives today. We're going to touch on nine imperatives. At this point in the letter, you begin to sense Paul's urgency increasing as he begins his final thoughts as his execution is looming. It's soon, or Paul will leave this world and go to be with Jesus. He, of course, begins this section with a charge. The charge is based on four realities. The four realities are on God himself, on Christ Jesus, on Jesus's return, and on Jesus's kingdom. So he's charging you, or Timothy, in the power of God, of Christ Jesus, of his imminent return, and of his kingdom that has been established. 
The first reality is, of course, the presence of God. We can never forget that God is with us at all times. So when we're going through adversity, when we're going through trials, whatever is going on at that moment, you need to remind yourself that God is present. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. In fact, in 1 Timothy 5.21, it says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. As you're sharing the gospel from person to person, you show no impartiality. You show no prejudging. For Christ, this epiphany, this God-man is going to come back. And there is a sense of urgency to preach the word in the presence of God and know that he is with us. The second reality is Christ Jesus. Christos, as it is referred to in the Greek, it means the anointed one, the Messiah. The Greek Messiah is, of course, the son of David, an appointed leader that is expected to bring in an age of peace and liberty from all oppression. You need to remember this. He says Christ Jesus. He does not say Jesus Christ. This is significant within the language. When he's talking about Christ Jesus, he's talking about the faith and the hope that we've had since before time began. The preeminence of Jesus that has existed before time. When the author writes Jesus Christ, he's talking about Jesus' earthly ministry and his time of of resurrection and his time of ascension and sitting at the right hand of God the Father in the present tense. When he says Christ Jesus, he's saying for all time. So we enter into these realities of preaching the word with first understanding that we're preaching within the presence of God. We also understand that this God has been present since before the foundations of the earth. And he's still with us today. And then the third reality is that Jesus is going to return. His imminent return that is going to come back is just that, it's imminent. Today, Christ could come back. This very moment, he could come back. And as a Christian, we have to have this mindset of come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, to be home with Christ. To know that in his preeminence, in his presence, that I could actually be today if he would come in his presence physically. Jesus is coming back is one of the third or the third reality. The fourth reality is that it's Jesus' kingdom. We live in Jesus' kingdom. Psalm 145 verses 11 through 13 says this. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of, your, of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion, your authority is what he's saying, endures throughout all generations. Not just the generations forward, but all generations without exclusion. <coughs> So first reality is the presence of God. The second reality is that Christ Jesus is the preeminent God of the universe. The third reality is that Jesus is coming back. And the fourth one is that he's coming back to here and here is his kingdom. He's been in charge of it since he created it. 
But Paul establishes for us right out the gate the urgency. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. So not only will he come back, but he will, in fact, we will stand before him and he will judge both the living and the dead. This is another way of saying he's going to judge both believers and unbelievers. And some of you might be saying, no, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't judge the believer. He doesn't judge your eternal state because you have the works and the righteousness of Christ Jesus in you, but he is in fact going to judge your faithfulness to him. And he will give you a reward that you will receive at his second coming. This crown of righteousness as we build towards this. But know that all believers, including you and me, will give an account before God. As elders within the church, we know positively that we will stand before God and give an account for our leadership of the body of the church. Hebrews tells us that. It also says for the congregation, it says, to make their life a joy, for these are men who will give an account. We stand firm on the word of God. The principles that we implement are hopefully based all the time on the word of God. It's not my opinion, it's what does his word say? For I will give an account of this word, my handling of this word as we talked about in weeks past. In light of Christ's coming judgment, Paul has these instructions to Timothy. I want to place them in the context of two sets of commands, but they're all written in an aspect of an imperative, right? So first is to preach the word, the second will be to be sober-minded. There's nine imperatives. You'll see five of them in verse two. You'll see four of them in verse five. I want you to know that a command is a specific instruction given to perform a particular kind of task. That's why today I want us to focus on the process, not the statistical result. Because you and me have experienced preaching the word of God to people, whether it be family members or colleagues, friends alike, and they still have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And for some of us, we're going to preach that word and none will in fact come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I call this the Isaiah 6 model. You remember that scene when he's in the Holy of Holies and he's with the seraphim and the cherubim and, and, and God says, whom shall we send who shall we give charge to? And Isaiah quickly says, here am I, send me. And then as God starts to unfold what he will be doing, Isaiah speaks up again, how long? How long am I going to have to do that? You'll do it until there's nothing left. You'll preach the word and no one will be saved. The only remnant, the only thing that will be left will be the stump the holy seed, which by the way is Christ, and the tree is the tree of life, and he will graft both Jew and Gentile believers into this tree. But you, your job is preach it and no one will listen. How do you like that assignment? Or you could be like Jonah. God says, go to Nineveh, speak these words, and I will save these people. Nope, they're filthy. I don't want anything to do with them. I'm going to Tarshish. 
I'm going to get out of the presence of God. You see, the naivete of Jonah was that he thought that if he left Judah, if he just got out of there, he would be outside of the presence of God. Guess who spoke to him in the belly of a whale at the bottom of the sea? God's there. You see, you can't leave the presence of God. You may not like your assignment, but you're going to do your assignment whether you want to or not. I don't care what God's put upon your heart, you're going to go to Nineveh. Or you're going to preach the word and no one's going to listen to you. And you know what? You're going to like it. And you know why? Because you understand that God is in your presence, that Christ is coming back, that Jesus is the Savior of the world and has been since the beginning of time, and you reside in his kingdom under his authority. And by his authority, he did not say, by my authority, if you get around to it, go make disciples of all nations. That's not what he said. He commanded you to go and do it. And today's message is a very somber message of are you doing it? His first command that he gives us is to preach the word. He tells us with the imperatives, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort. The initial imperative of preach is explained then by the next four. The action required is to preach and the content that you are to preach is the very word of God, not your opinion. What does the word of God say? How do I do this? It begins by number one, being prepared to be ready in season and out of season. The imperatives here in verse two means to stand by or to be ready. I want to note that in season and out of season means actually there's never not a season. If I'm to be ready in season and out of season, then I never have the excuse of saying, hey, no, it's my day off. I don't have to share the gospel with you today. You don't understand. I'm on this airplane. I'm getting ready to fly. I just want to listen to my music and turn off the world. You don't understand. This is my freeway. You guys are causing me to be late. So I'm no longer going to give testimony of Jesus. I'm going to tell them in a colorful way that I'm number one. And we sit there and we go through life Ignoring the fantastic opportunities that God constantly presents to us, and we fail to simply do one thing, your job. Preach the word. In season, out of season. But he says that you need to be prepared. Let me give you, if the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are prepared. We can't use the excuse anymore that says... No, you know, I feel like I need to join one more Bible study. I think if I got together with a handful of people and we just looked at that Great Commission one more time, then I would clearly understand what he could possibly mean by go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Man, we come up with excuses. I come up with excuses. But what are we to preach? We preach the word. The next three imperatives describe the content of our preaching, to reprove. This carries the idea of persuasion, the content of our preaching. It's winsome, right? Never are we to preach the gospel by grabbing both hands on our Bible, running up behind someone and just 
clobber him right on the back of the head and say, turn or burn. No, it's to be winsome. It's to use persuasion. Not, not manipulation, but persuasion because you're going to show them the beauty and the loveliness of our Savior by pouring out your love and your kindness upon them. And it will be, in fact, God's kindness, as Romans tells us, that leads them to repentance. The second is to rebuke. It's dealing with the correction of sin and wrong uh, and the wrong application of the word. Again, you can't capitulate or give away the reproving, the persuasion. So therefore, in my persuasion, when I'm rebuking, I can't start with, let me tell you how dumb you are. Here's why you're an idiot. Here's where you're missing the whole point of God's word because you're not that bright. Right? I can't get rid of the reproof. So when I reprove and I rebuke, they're hand in hand and they're locked together. I also have to exhort. Exhort means patience. I need to be long-suffering. I need to be patient as God's working in a person's life. I need to see the opportunity to love and minister to a person. And the only way I can do that is to die unto myself and to step out in faith and then rejoice over what God's doing in people's lives. This outward compulsion, this process that we follow. You see, like God's instruction in Ezekiel, right? We are to preach the truth whether people listen or not. We are to preach the word because they will not endure, is what it says, and the result will be that some will in fact not listen. They will amass or accrue for them, right, teachers of the, to fit their own desires. They will accumulate large numbers of false teachers who will simply serve their itching ears. I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, I am not here to tell you what you want to hear. I will not tell you what you want to hear unless what you want to hear is the word of God itself. None of the teaching pastors here want to tell you anything that isn't in God's word. We combat these wrong motivations by faithfully preaching God's word. The second command that he gives us, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. The initial imperative is explained again by the next three. You have to endure with suffering. You have to endure with suffering. Life's not easy. Life is incredibly complex. But it doesn't take away that when you're clear-headed and you're sober-minded that you endure with suffering. You need to do the work of an evangelist, he tells us. And I love these words when he says, fulfill your ministry. Do you hear what he's saying? You see, each and every one of you, including me, have a ministry. Fulfill your ministry. If you're the CEO of this corporation, whether you're a CEO or you're the janitor, whether you're one of the pastors at this church, no matter whom you are, if Christ is in you and you are in Christ, you have a job. Your job is to endure with great suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry that God has put upon you. Because you are to be ready in season and out of season. 
And you are to, in fact, preach the word. To be clear-headed, to be clear-minded, to endure the hardship, to carry out the work of an evangelist, to fulfill your ministry, to be a hard worker in your ministry, to not miss the opportunities that God hands you to fulfill your ministry. But he also uses this word departed or departure. It means loosing, as in an anchor. You need to understand, the ship on the gospel has already set sail. It's already going. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you on the boat? Because if you're on the boat, there's endurance and hardship that is to come. There is the work of an evangelist, and there is still your ministry that you will, in fact, reprove, rebuke, and exhort the people that God brings before you. Paul switches gears in the second part of this, and he uses three verb tenses. In these three verb tenses, he says, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I love that phrase. In fact, I entitled this message to agonize the good agony. I want to tell you what the good agony is here in a minute. He has fought. He's literally saying in the Greek, I have agonized the good agony. These call of action (coughs) to fight the good fight to finish the race, to fulfill your ministry, to agonize over the good agony, to have kept the faith, we have to ask the question, have we? Have we kept the faith? You see, God brings moments of hardship and difficulty into our life. And he does this because he's shaping and molding us into the image of himself as we read earlier, right? Praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. These things that shape us and mold us to Him. We can't ever forget the reality of the moment that we're in the presence of God. Christ Jesus, He's the one that's going to return and He is the sovereign King of kings and the Lord of lords of this kingdom. And we report to Him. But these moments that God brings us. Now, I I have to tell you, I asked my wife for permission to share the story because last Friday, the Friday before this last one, we woke up in the morning, we were going to go to breakfast and just kind of visit a little bit. My wife came down and she had this look on her face. And she says, Jeff, something's wrong with me. And in that brief moment, about eight in the morning, she suddenly said the world in her eyes completely tipped upside down. And she began to struggle to walk and walked backwards and fell And as she came back up, her eyes, she couldn't see. And the side of her face was, in fact, a bit droopy. These are frightening moments. But I want you to see the good agony in this. I also want you to know, because I forget all the time, right? I never finish the story on things like Jill's fine. She's okay. (laughs) Right? So don't send me a thousand emails saying, you forgot to tell us if your wife's okay. It's like... 
we'd have a different announcement if she wasn't okay. So, but Jill's okay. But in this moment, right, this, this moment, the doctors, I mean, we're rushed right into the emergency room. We're back there. There's 10 people in this room. They're asking a thousand questions of me. They're asking questions of her. And the neurologist looks at Jill and says, sweetheart, says, I just have a, a quick question for you. What year is it? My wife, she's, she's so loving. She just kind of giggles, says, oh, says, yeah, it's, it's, tears begin to stream down her cheeks. And she turns and she looks at me, this look of please help me. And it's that moment, it's that moment when you realize that the love of your life has something going on in her brain that she doesn't even recall what year it is. And you want so desperately to help her. It's that burden that I'm talking about. Do you see the lost with that kind of burden? You see, because there is nothing you can do to get the stat of saving their soul. But you have been entrusted by God Almighty in His kingdom, in His return, in His eminence that existed before time, and in His presence right then and right there to preach the Word of God, and the result will be what God has ordained. You want so desperately to pour yourself into this person And I'm recalling at this moment as I'm staring at my wife with tears now streaming down my cheek, it's okay. It's okay. Because our God is in control. Whether you stay or you go to Him, our God is in control. The neurologist turned and looked and said, so listen to your husband, it's all okay, sweetie, it's okay. We need to stop trying to control the sovereignty of God, and we need to turn and be faithful to the sovereignty of God. What he's commanded us to do, like Paul is laying this baton to to Timothy. You see, the motivation in our life is Christ, and the result is his pleasure that he has in you as a co-heir with him we start to realize that the crown that he offers us represents power, legitimacy, victory, triumph, honor, and glory, as well as immortality, righteousness, and resurrection. It is the very crown that the 24 elders will ultimately toss at the feet of Jesus, for it is his power, his legitimacy, his victory, his triumph, his honor, and his glory, as well as his immortality. It is his righteousness and it is his resurrection that you get to stand with him in glory. Christ is our prize. This is what we work for. Revelation 4, 10 through 11 says this, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him and him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. 
Paul's process is so simple. Number one, he's saying, do this because they will do this and this will happen. Let me say that a different way. Preach the word because they will not endure sound teaching. And the result will be that they'll accumulate up around them teachers to tell them what they want to hear. But preach the word anyway. That's the process. The second process that he gives us is do this because I have done this and this will happen. Paul's laying out the model that he's given to Timothy. In other words, he's saying, be sober-minded in all things because I have fought the good fight. I've agonized the good agony and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The goal here is to be faithful to your calling, to be alert because Jesus is coming again and all of us will stand before him and he will reward faithfulness. That's what he promises us. Praise be to God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. A.W. Tozer said this about Rutherford. He said, it was the enraptured Rutherford who could shout in the midst of serious and painful trials, praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. Such doctrine as this does not find much sympathy among Christians in these soft and carnal days. We tend to think of Christianity as a painless system by which we can escape the penalty of past sins and attain to heaven at last. The flaming desire to be rid of every unholy thing and to put on the likeness of Christ at any cost is not found often among us. We expect to enter the everlasting kingdom of our Father and sit down around the table of sages, saints, and martyrs, and through the grace of God, maybe we shall. Maybe we shall. But for the most of us, it could prove at first an embarrassing experience. Ours might be the silence of the untried soldier in the presence of the battle-hardened heroes who have fought the fight, who've agonized the good agony and won the victory, and who have scars to prove that they were present when the battle was joined. The devil, things, and people, being what they are, it is necessary for God to use the hammer, the file, and the furnace in his holy work of preparing a saint for true sainthood. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, God allows suffering in your life to shape you, not ruin you. Can you stand in that faithfulness, that moment that you've been given to glorify God by preaching his word, whether they accept or not? And can you rejoice in God's choices and decisions in your life, that he brings these difficulties because he's shaping you and molding you into the image of him. It's how when I consider 
at pure joy, when I encounter various trials, when I'm staring into my wife's eyes not knowing what the result is going to be, my only hope is to fall to my knees, to worship a holy God, to praise Him for this moment because this moment is shaping us. And my job at this moment is no different than my job is at any time, which is to preach to her the very Word of God, to minister to her, to love her with all that I have, to love my wife as Christ loves the church and know that by the time I leave this hospital, there will be another person and then another person and another person. And God will keep bringing these people over and over and over again. And the challenge of that moment is, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful to preach the word of God, to be ready in and out of season, to be ready to share the truth, the beauty, and the loveliness of Christ in a winsome, persuasive argument that, please, brother, please, sister, would you turn to Jesus? Would you look to Jesus and live? Can you take your battlefield analogies, can you take your football analogies, your basketball analogies, whatever they are, and can you say that you've left it all on the field? You've left it all on the court. You've given your all. You've spent and you have been spent. Can you be like Paul in this prison where everyone has abandoned him and he's desiring to have an intimate conversation with his brother Timothy? Can you be this person who's in prison and your primary focus is how do I continue to preach the word of God? Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your trial, do you see the beauty of Christ in that trial? Brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy. Because first God wounds, then God heals. Amen? Amen. Our Father, our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. We come to you with our tender hearts and we say, Lord, forgive me for moments of unfaithfulness. I know that you are my advocate in heaven and that I will... I will still be seen by you as holy and blameless as my faith is in you. But Lord, I pray to hear the words one day from you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Help us, Lord, to be servants of the God Most High, to be faithful to our calling, to fulfill our ministry, to preach your word. Whether people believe or don't believe, let us rejoice in your sovereignty and in your beauty. It's in Christ's name we pray. As pastor here at the church, all the pastors, we love you. And we're here for you. And we want you to take us up on the opportunity to be ministered to. And we, lo- we want to meet with you. We want to talk with you. And we want to pour our lives into you to know Christ and to live for Christ. But don't miss the opportunity this week to share the gospel, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.